Well, good morning. Welcome to Central for the start of a new series entitled My Father's World. Well, we're going to look at creation and our responsibility to it. Now, over the last 20 years, the whole idea of creation and, and creation care, as we're going to call it, has drifted from being a kind of a peripheral uh, issue to being a, a key and essential theme. The only challenge with that, though, is that for the most part, our ideas about what is involved with caring for creation actually come from conversations out there because it's not very often discussed in here in the evangelical church. And, and that reality has actually led quite a lot of people, environmentalist ecologists, to put the blame for a lot of the problem at the door of the church itself. Lynn White is a name you may not have heard of, but she has written extensively on the roots of the ecological crisis, as she calls it, and this is what she wrote. Get ready for it. Both our present science and our present technology are so tinctured, what a word that is, with orthodox Christian arrogance toward nature that no solution for our ecological crisis can be expected from them alone. Since the roots of our trouble are so largely religious, the remedy must also be essentially religious, probably drifting back to Mother Earth, I guess, whether we call it that or not. We must rethink and refeel our nature and our destiny. Now, White is convinced that the problem with the environment is a problem that the Christian Orthodox community have maybe not created, but we've massively contributed towards it. Now, let's be real. If we're reading stuff like that and they're talking about us, what does that kind of critique do? Usually what it does is it gives us the idea that people like Lynn White are dangerous secular ecologists who desperately need to be avoided. Now, the other part of this, of course, is that over the last number of years, the tie-up between environmental concerns and our responsibility has become so political that many of us are saying, hey, wait a minute, I want absolutely nothing to do with this topic. Why do we do that? We're afraid. We're afraid of being misunderstood, misrepresented, and characterized as liberal progressives. That's Alan Johnson's story. Johnson is a, a Christian, he's an environmentalist, whose passion for the environment was triggered when he went to Haiti on a church mission trip in 1993. And while he was there, he was going through the countryside and he saw some farmers burning fig trees to make charcoal that they could sell for the cash that they needed. And in that moment, it broke him. In that moment, he said, look, I recognize the connection between poverty and the environmental crisis, and I determined to do something about it. Now, whatever you think about Johnson's particular opinion on specific issues, what's interesting is that Johnson says, by far, his biggest challenge has been 
convincing Christians of the scriptural responsibility to care for a world that God has created, especially when he says, I am being labeled, get this, as a new age nut and a liberal progressive. Johnson says, my identity is not an environmentalist. I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus, and it's because I follow Jesus that I care. In many conservative churches, talking about and taking any interest in creation concerns is an example of the church bringing worldly issues onto center stage. And I've no doubt that a number of you are freaking out at this point. <laughs> this topic is avoided. It has been for so long. And in fact, if we dig into church history, it, it seems as though it's always been contentious. So Augustine, okay, we get a lot of church practices, theology from St. Augustine. He's a late 4th, early 5th century theologian. He wrote, I think it was three books on creation, and people thought he was a bit too, well, invested in the topic. So he, he is attributed with this joke that I actually think is kind of him making fun of himself. And I think, folks, there's a part that we need to do that in this series too. We need to just lighten up and make fun of ourselves a little bit. Well, Augustine asked this joke. He said, hey, uh, consider this. What was God doing before creating the world? The answer, he was preparing hell for those who pry too deep. It seems as though from the very beginning, any kind of focus on creation, well, it hasn't been fun. It hasn't been inspiring. It's been downright contentious, and it certainly hasn't been friendly. Here's my goal for this series. Why don't we try and break that trend? Are you okay with that? If we actually kind of look at creation from a scriptural vantage point, and just chill out a little bit. Just relax a little bit. Now, if we're going to do that, we need to do two things, okay? Firstly, I think what we need to do is we need to be clear about the goal that we have. Now, the goal that we have is simple. What we want to do is we want to take a closer look at creation to recognize, despite what the world outside says, our Bible says when we look closely at Scripture, we've got every reason to celebrate and so many reasons to care. We do not need an ecological crisis as Christians to care about the world. We just need our Bible. So if we're going to do this in a, in a way that we can all agree on, then what we need to do is we just need to get back to the text and let the text speak about this. I think the second thing we need to do is we kind of need to relax. Take a deep breath. I'm not going to take you somewhere you don't want to go. It may be challenging when we look at Scripture. But by relaxing and taking a deep breath, what you realize is, well, even when things get tough and challenging, it's going to be okay. Okay? If you look at Scripture, what Scripture says about creation, you're going to be okay. Relax. Now, as true as that is, you're going to be okay. The reality is, talking about creation exposes the Christian to criticism from all sides. So just get comfortable with it. If you're going to go back to the scriptures and try and engage with the scriptures on creation, it's not going to be good enough for everybody. 
Somebody is going to find a hole with this. Somebody is going to go at you for this. Just relax. It's part of the territory. This is just what's involved with this at this particular point in time. So relax. Now let me give you an example of what I mean by that and how I deal with this. Over the last seven years up in Holland, if there's kind of like a crux or the thrust of the criticism that I get and the fear that many people have when I address certain issues, it's that, well, he's a product of a socialist Europe. He doesn't understand our country, he, what it stands for. He's going to push central towards a liberal European worldview, a worldview that stands at odds with both American values and the scriptures. Ouch. Now, candidly, me becoming an American citizen really isn't going to change all of that. I can change my nationality, but it doesn't change my background, does it? Some people, it won't be enough. What do you do in a situation like that? What do, you, what do you do when somebody's saying some things and it's like, like, some of this is just so far off base? Well, you don't need to react to what's clearly off base. What do you need to do? You need to listen to the part of this that is true. What is true? What is true is that when I approach a topic, my background goes with me. What I've seen, what I've heard, what I've thought, goes with me as I approach the text. That is true. And, and that is appropriate in what I think is the wrong that is actually being said. And so when people point things like that out to me, I, I recognize what is being said. And in my heart, I say, yes, God, there's a part of this that is right. Not that I'm a liberal European socialist, folks. That's wrong. I'm not. But it is true that what I've seen, what I've heard, what I've experienced has shaped who I've become and it has shaped how I view the world. But here's the point, as a follower of Jesus, when I take who I am to the text, I'm called to allow the text to read me and change what I think despite what I feel or think or have heard. Now, here's the thing. What applies to me when it comes to creation concerns actually applies to each and every one of us in this room and those of us watching online. See, what you have seen, what you have heard, what you have experienced has shaped the way you view the world and how you think about your responsibility to it. The question is, what has shaped you? How strongly has the scriptures shaped you? In 2015, Pew did a research that they followed on from 2010. And in this research, they evaluated the relation between religion and science. There were multiple facets of this research. You can go look it up online. Now, one aspect of this was looking at concern for creation, the environment, climate change, and everything else, and, you know, all of the uncontroversial stuff, non-controversial stuff, all of that. Well, well, this is what they concluded, and it's rather striking for what's glaringly obvious. I apologize for the first four words. After that, it gets easy. 
In multivariate statistical modeling, which basically means it doesn't matter which model we put this all the data through, the results were still the same. That's basically what it says, right? The major religious affiliation groups did not differ from the religiously unaffiliated in views about climate change. Did you get that? Your religious background made absolutely no difference to climate change, to those who were religiously unaffiliated. Whoa. I, I looked at that and I'm like, did I read that right? So obviously I'm looking at this. You should be listening to this and you should be thinking, wait a minute, okay. If my religious affiliation makes no difference to my views on climate change, what does make a difference to my views on climate change? This is what they said. Buckle up. Political party identification, race, and ethnicity are stronger predictors of views about climate change beliefs than our religious identity or observance. Whoa. You get that? Your political party, your race, your ethnicity are stronger predictors of your views about creation and your responsibility to it than your faith and the way you practice it. Folks, we've got a problem. Whatever you think about this, we've got a problem. But here's the good thing. You're just like me. <laughs> Whatever you think about me, you're just like me. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same place. For some reason, for some topics, we actually bring our backgrounds to the text and think that our backgrounds are the right ones and never need to change, and everybody else does. This is a problem on a lot of the issues that we're grappling with in our nation. We're all in the same boat. The color of our skin, our nationality, our political views actually seem to drive our opinions more than the text itself. So here's the summary of this, and I'm laying the foundation for it because it's so contentious. Our religiosity, our ethnicity, religious background, age and experience influence how we view our relationship to creation. Sadly, Scripture seldom does. I want to let that sit for a second. Because we're all in the same boat here. We're all in the same boat. So here's the thing, right? If, if there isn't much of a difference between the religious and the a-religious, we obviously need to ask why. Why? One conclusion from this is that sometimes playing it safe and not talking about a controversial topic actually does you more damage than it does good. Right? There's a good reason why pastors like me just don't talk about topics like this. Truthfully, in more than 25 years of ministry, I don't believe I've ever given a series on creation before. So besides my own negligence, which I confess and repent of, there are other issues, I think, that make it really hard. 
Here's the point. If you were going to say, well, our pastor never talks about these issues. What are we going to do? If you were to go home and you were going to say, okay, God, show me my relationship to the creation from your word. And you were to pick up your New Testament or even Old Testament for that. And you were to say, okay, God, lead me, Spirit, lead me to the one text that is just going to show us how to engage with your world responsibly. You know what you discover? You wouldn't find one. You can find it on relationships and marriage and money and death and so many different topics. But Doug Moo says in his book that you won't find one when it comes to creation. So what, what do we do then when we've got a problem? We've got a problem, and the problem is that we take so much of our background into a theme that is a big theme out there, but our scripture isn't as straightforward as we would like it to be. But what do we do? Because that's the problem we've got with this topic. In this series, what I really want to try and do is have a conversation about the way we can approach Scripture from the viewpoint of how to engage with our Father's world. Notice the title, please. My Father's World. This is not going to be a conversation that leads us into an argument about creationist Adam and Eve and evolutionists. Friends, if we do that, all we do is we're led back into a conversation about apples and origins. That's not helpful. We believe this is our Father's world. And so what I want to do is encourage a conversation through looking at Scripture for how God wants us to enjoy this world that He's created at the same time as just being responsible in the way that we steward it until Christ returns to restore it. Please note that. We're going to do this with the end in mind, and I will lead us to texts that show that Jesus will return to restore not just you and me, but the world itself. And the question is, what will Jesus find when he returns? That's why it's important. See, Whatever topic we tackle, seeking what God says about it has to be the most important thing. And our view of Scripture is important, and it's shown by how we live it and how we treat it. If we're convinced that Scripture has authority, then we are, on occasions, going to be willing to change our mind about something when the Scripture clearly tells us that what we were thinking was wrong. This is part of the process of what we call engaging with God's Word consistently. The reason we wake up and we say, hey, you know what, I need to engage with God's Word today is that through the consistent repetition of it, we actually get taken deeper into the truths of things that aren't so straightforward, and then we're led to a point of having the Holy Spirit slowly start to change our minds. But make no mistake, we only change our mind when we are taken to a genuine understanding of the Scriptures. So if we go through this series and you change your mind on something, I pray it will be because you've been genuinely, consistently, repeatedly engaging with the Scriptures on a topic where sadly the Scriptures are often kept silent. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a conversation through the Scriptures and our goal with this 
is to help you realize we don't need an ecological crisis to celebrate the world we live in, and we don't need an ecological crisis to care. It's right there in the text from beginning to end. Where the story begins is where the story ends. And the closer we look at the world, the more amazing our God actually becomes. And we're doing this in this season because I don't know whether you've noticed, it's going to be, what is it, 75 this week? This is a great time to live in Michigan. We've gone through the darkness of winter, which is still fun, by the way. But now it's spring, and many of you will see you in September. Hopefully, you'll, you'll join in. We're all going to be outside. So what I want to do for the rest of this, kind of having laid the foundation here because this is a controversial topic and I didn't want to be misunderstood, being a liberal European progressive as I am, not, but it's just basically what I want to do is I just want to start with two simple truths that I hope we can all agree to because they're the obvious ones. And then from there, we, we're just going to dig a little bit deeper. What I want to start is actually in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. If you go to your Bible, go back there, Genesis chapter 1. And Genesis 1 talks about an unmistakable calling that you and I have. We have an unmistakable calling. This is the text, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make mankind's humanity in our image in our likeness, why is he going to do that? This is why, unmistakable calling, so that they, plural, I'll get to that in a second, they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all of the white animals, and all of the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. You realize this statement here is a summary statement, right? Because the creation of Adam and Eve doesn't happen until when? the next chapter, it hasn't happened yet. This states God's intention. This is a didactic principle. It's not part of the story of creation. This is us being told why God is creating us. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Part of that calling. Next word, rule over, there we go again, the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now note that word rule. The word rule actually means to trample down. To trample down. That's a strong word to use to describe humanity's calling in relation to nature. The word subdue has a similar meaning. It means to kind of tread down. So think about that. Is it any surprise why people like Lynn White uses this meaning to show why looking to Christians to do anything positive with creation is a foolish thing when their God actually tells them to trample it down right at the very beginning? So what do we do with that? Well, I think we need to acknowledge what is true. What is true is that there is a clear authority that has been given to humanity, not to the animals, to rule. It, it is a very strong term. It's been transferred to men and women by God. 
But the strength of the term is connected, if we are going to be scripturally authentic, is connected to the very fact that unlike animals, when God created men and women, he created us in his likeness. One of the hallmarks of likeness is the right to rule. The strength of the term is designed to emphasize the responsibility and the calling that we have. A little side note here. A lot of conversation going on right now with the Beth Moore controversy, controversy, whatever's right, I'm lost, uh, about role of females in churches, etc., and what the work of Christ does. Really interesting here, right? In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that the mutuality of rule is given to who? Them. Male and female. Well, the question theologically becomes, okay, what does the finished work of Christ achieve does it actually take us back to the post-fall state, which actually shows even submission to Adam? Or does it take us back to the pre-fall state, which is the mutuality of rule? How, how effective is the work of Christ? But no, whatever you come down on this, it's one of those interesting theological questions that there is a mutuality of rule here, given not to males, but given to male and female. Neither Adam nor Eve have been created. And if you're a complementarian, think about that. If you don't know what that is, you're spared. But, but God clearly calls Adam and Eve to rule over creation. And it's a strong verb, trampled down. And I think that there is another verse that kind of shows that what God is not saying is that because we have a right to rule, we can basically trample down and do anything we want because God's going to restore it in the end. And the flaws of that will come up in the series, even with, in relation to our own life and how we live when we have Christ. Well, I can do whatever I want because Christ has always forgiven me. We don't think that's legitimate any more than we think... Ruling over the earth in a way that tramples us down is legitimate. So the question is, how is this rule then supposed to work? We rule, and the strength of the term is because of the strength of the relationship that exists between Creator God and you and me. That's the point. So how do we do it? I think this is the key verse. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Look at this verse. The Lord God took the man, took Adam, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The word work, Hebrew, literally means to serve or to cultivate. Friends, we may not like the fact that Monday's coming, but I hate to point out that work was created before the fall. This part of our call. So how do we rule? Through cultivating and serving. What does Jesus say about the hallmarks of godly leadership? Not to be first, but to be last. To serve, to serve, to wash feet, to serve. This word, take care of, literally means to protect. Protect. I'll say it again, we don't need a crisis in order to care because it's written in the very right to rule. This is the point. Now, the reality of this 
if we think about it, is that this leads us to the idea of, of stewardship. In Genesis, what is common for us and all of creation is that every single one of us have our origins in the activity of God himself. Creation itself, just like you and me, come at the very activity of God itself, himself. In terms of origin, we all come from the same person. But that's a difference. The difference is that humanity is made in, in, uniquely in God's image, and we are told to cultivate, to serve, to care, to protect creation. The implication of this is, okay, from the very beginning then, we are called to steward, not exploit. And one of the difficult questions that we need to ask ourselves is, when does stewardship and enjoyment lead to exploitation? And friends, it would be really good to have an exact verse for this, and we don't find one. This is where it becomes uniquely personal and uniquely social too. But I think this is the principle we get from this, right? We don't celebrate creation with integrity when we show no care for what God created, what he owns, what he deems to be good, and what he will ultimately return to restore. There's not a lot that's straightforward when it comes to, okay, when does stewardship and enjoyment lead to exploitation? It's not easy. But what is pretty clear, what is undeniable, is that we have the responsibility to care. We've got that calling. And if we're going to be truthful to Scripture, we are going to champion our right to enjoy and celebrate creation alongside the responsibility and the calling that we have to take care of it. And if we champion the need to care for the world in which we live, we do it not because we are extreme environmentalists or liberal progressives, but because it is the unmistakable call that God gave to those who are fashioned in his image. It's just clear right at the start of the scriptures. Now, this, the, the next part of this is the part that we often miss. We steward something, right? If you look at all of the parables, and I'll jump into one later on, that all of the parables that Jesus told about stewardship, there's usually a future in mind, right? The story goes, and the master left for a season, and then what? Returned. And when he returned, he asked that question, so what have you done with what I give you? The whole idea of stewardship here has a future in mind. And when we look at that future, when it relates to creation, there's specific text to help us realize that, wait a minute, there's an undeniable responsibility that we all have. There's an unmistakable calling to enjoy, yes, to cultivate and to protect. But it's because there is that undeniable responsibility. It's about stewardship, stewarding something that God owns, but he's given to us. Now, when we look at stewardship, I'll get to this text in a second. When we look at stewardship, we recognize that stewardship addresses actions, not intentions. 
That's the whole point with stewardship. So I have six children. If I told you I care about my children, you would see whether I actually care about my children by the way I what? Care for my children. Action, not intention. So in the same way, we can say, okay, God wants his people shaped in his image to care about his creation. How do we know whether we care about something that's important to God? By the way, we care for it. Now, the question is, why should we care for creation? Why, why should we? And I want to point out to you that it is unmistakable in the text that we have been connected to creation, we are connected to creation, and get this, we will be connected to creation. There is this relationship between the created order and the created men and women of God that isn't broken and will be restored. Now, if you have a Bible, turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, I'm going to read some verses there. I don't know about you, but Romans 8 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It is so inspiring talks about life with the Spirit that we can overcome. It doesn't matter what holds us down. It doesn't matter what our struggles are. It doesn't matter what we're groaning through right now. God's just going to do so much and we're going to overcome this. We've got a hope of redemption. I read Romans 8 so often. What's interesting in this text of Romans 8 is that what it shows is that we are connected with creation in suffering but we are also connected to creation in the hope of a redemption that's coming. There's a connection that we have. We had it, we got it, and we will have it. That's why God wants us to care. Now have a look at this text with me. It's Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read from verses 18 through 23. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He's clearly talking about us, right? Now he switches. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. You see the connection there? For the creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Are you seeing this? Creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. That's a connection that creation has to you and me. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Now, I'm going to stop there. Key phrase here, right? Creation has been subject to frustration. But what's interesting in where I've stopped is we see something, right? Creation groans. We groan. Read a little bit further on, 26 through 28. The Holy Spirit groans. Why do we groan? Because we're suffering. 
because we're struggling. But the good news of the gospel is it doesn't end there. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus enters in and the groaning has an appointed time to end. There will come a moment when there will be no more suffering, no more wailing, no more gnashing of teeth. When will that time be? That time will be ultimately when Jesus returns. And in that moment, we will no longer groan, we will praise. And the scriptures echo over and over again with the idea that when God returns, it too will be freed from its groaning. If you look at the scriptures, it's remarkable. The story begins... With God, you and me, men and women, humanity, animals living in harmony. Where does it end in Revelation 21 and 22? It ends with God, with us, with creation, all of the animals living in harmony. Friends, we were created to to be in connection with creation, we are in connection with creation, and we will be connected to creation. That's why there is an undeniable responsibility that we have. I keep forgetting to transition that part. See, this is the point here. Creation is shared in the fall. There are some of the scriptures. And creation will share in the redemption. Creation will share in the redemption. And so while Paul's focus here is on humanity, it's on us. Verse 21 makes it pretty clear that creation has to be redeemed for a redeemed humanity to have a suitable habitat. One commentator puts it like this. Paul quickly indicates that the broadening out of God's saving purpose beyond Israel has not only Gentile believers in view. It's not just about you and me. The commentator goes on, no, it's actually about the whole of creation. The inheritance of the redeemed people is no longer simply the promised land, but the whole world. Think about that, the whole world. Humanity was tied to creation, it is tied to creation, it will be tied to creation. And because of that is true, we have an undeniable responsibility to care. And so we come back to that question, right? When Jesus returns, what will he find? Will he find the earth rotten, crusty, eroding, or will he find it where his people have made that commitment to steward their part of the world in a way that shows that they serve and protect So let me begin to wrap this whole thing up. What are we going to get if we just recognizing our backgrounds, recognizing the difficulty of this topic, recognizing that no matter what we say with this, somebody thinks we've gone too far or not far enough because as much as we would like one single simple verse to tell us what to do, it's never that easy on things that are important. Recognizing all of that, what are we going to get out of this? If we just open up the text and allow the text to speak, what's the win? What's the win? Well, I can think of a number of them. I just want to share four. Firstly, I think the win is that we will be able to share Scripture's relevance to people who think that the Scriptures are irrelevant. The lost see creation as an issue. 
People in our own town do. How many of you saw the news this week where I think it was Good Morning America, Good Morning something, where they were talking on Earth Day. They actually had a, a, sec a section there on that program that was actually filmed on Lake Michigan right here in Holland. In fact, there was somebody in our church's home they used. And they talked about rising water levels. And, it, and the report actually did a really good job. Talked about, look, the, the climate has often changed, water levels have often risen, but what's really interesting is it's gone from really low to really high, and I think in about seven years. And it's costing the people in our town, in, in that stretch, I think they said $2,200 per square foot to stop their house going into the lake. This is an issue for lost people. So what are we going to get by looking at this? I think, look, by developing what I'm calling here an ecology theology, I think what we'll do is we'll gain one more tool, just one more tool, to be able to communicate the relevance of the Scriptures for the world in which we live. And I think that's important, especially when our nation drifts more secular. Secondly, and this is important too, I see a number of younger people in here, and bless God for that, an organization called Tear Fund did research on church young people, and they found that nine out of ten church young people said that they were concerned about the environment and creation. They wanted to know the truth, but unfortunately, their church was not talking to them about it. And as a result of that, they were actually having to get their information from other sources. See, here's the real problem. These church young people saw our silence as complicity in the growing, what they consider to be ecological disaster, and it was more fuel for them to feel alienated from the church. Many of those young people were just convinced that this is just another sign that the church is an age-old institution out of touch with real issues. What do we gain in doing something like this? Parents, young people, we gain the perspective that says, listen, the church may be slow to respond, but God has the way that we should respond in his word. And we want to open this up because we want you to know how to approach some of these issues, even though the answers to these issues really aren't easy. Thirdly, I think the third thing we get out of this is that we will be personally challenged to accept our rule needing to be wise. What does service and protection look like in the context of your life? How, how do you do that wisely? See, here's the problem. Not only do many Christians consider there to be no obligation to creation, but many of them act as if resisting any kind of concern for creation is a mark of spiritual maturity. How can you read Genesis 1 and 2 and come to that conclusion? I don't know. But that's the sad truth. What we want to do is we want to put out an alternate approach, and we think this approach is more scriptural, it's more godly, and it's the right thing to do. Lastly, and this is the major aim through this whole thing, we think that this series, in taking us a lot closer to creation, is going to help us see creation close up. And what's interesting is the closer you get to creation, the more awesome God gets. The more awesome God gets. The closer we're going to look at this, the more amazing our God becomes. 
And you know what this will do? This will actually, rather than fuel, uh, put fuel in our fire about what changes we need to make, I think it will put fuel in our fire about how we need to celebrate God in amazing ways. Let me close with this story. Uh, John Lasseter is the director of Pixar Films, and he was uh, the director of the film Cars. Many of you saw that. He was being interviewed once by Michelle Norris on national radio, and uh, Michelle Norris commented on how realistic these cars were, and although it was created by computer animated, uh, computer animation, she said, when, when you look at these things, it looks as though it's photography. She said, it's amazing. And then she asked Lasseter, she said to him, Look, with all of the advances in computer technology, is there anything that you guys can't do? Lasseter responded, absolutely. And this is what he said. The more organic something is in the way it looks and in the way it moves, the harder it is to create with a computer. Now, what's amazing with this, he told in that interview how every frame, not every scene, every frame in that Cars movie took at least 17 hours to create. <laughs> to get it lifelike took so much time. The average for a Pixar movie in cost is about $140 million. To get computers to do something that looks natural is not only ridiculously expensive, it's ridiculously time-consuming, and Lasseter says it's a poor imitation of the real thing. Now, compare the, the cost and the effort of that with the cost and the effort that went into an exhibition that happened in the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens. This was an exhibition not of computer-generated uh, you know, animation, but actually of photography. Just listen to what is being described in this review and ask yourself, what are they talking about? This is what it says. One canvas in magenta red has curling squares of what looked like skin or material. Another has furry brown hairs sprouting on green and orange stripes. You picturing all of this? And on another, lip-like shapes float on a gray-white background. The subject of those photos? Zoomed-in tree bark. Magnified tree bark. It kind of freaks you out. Don't do that with your, your mattress at home, by the way. <laughs> there's certain places you want to magnify, there's certain things you want to leave alone. But it was Dr. Lewis Foster who many years ago said this. Listen, the closer one gets to something man has made, the more imperfection, more its imperfections are obvious. I wonder how many of us listened to Larry's story and said, you know what, Larry, there's only one problem about allowing people to crew for me when you run 50 miles. You know, they're going to see you at your worst. The closer you get to humanity, the closer you get to something that we have made, the more its imperfections and its limitations are obvious. But Foster goes on, the more we magnify something God has created, the more we see its perfection. I think this is true. Listen, friends, we live in an incredible part of the world, and we're going into an incredible season. It's going to be 70 this week. Can you believe it? Enjoy it. God has created all things for our enjoyment. But as you go through it, take a closer look at it. And as you take a closer look at it, you may see some things that show that we need to serve and protect a little bit more. But I also guarantee you this, the closer you look at it, 
the more you will realize, oh, what a wonderful world we live in. God has created an amazing world for us. And as we dig into the scriptures, we're going to be challenged, yes. But our hope is that we will realize we don't need an ecological crisis to, to celebrate this world and to care for it. It's part of our calling. And it's an undeniable responsibility that we have. So I hope you can join us for the season. That series, I know a number of you will be going up north to your cottages and all this kind of stuff. But while you're there, uh, tune in and just be inspired to enjoy this wonderful world that God has created. Bow your heads, let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the undeniable beauty of the world in which we live. We thank you that you have planted us in this part of the world. A beautiful world, but as we saw this week on Earth Day, a world that still has challenges. And so, Father, I just pray that each and every one of us, as the weather starts to turn, we move into spring and summer. Father, I pray that we would venture out into this wonderful world that you've given to us and that we would look closely at it. And Father, as we look closely, just reveal to us ways in which we can serve and protect this corner of the world better than we do, but at the same time, enable us to see the work of the master builder behind it all. And God, may we be inspired. May we follow in the countless psalmists and the prophets of old who have lifted their eyes to the mountains, to the hills, to the heavens, and just received and perceived your glory and your uh, craftsmanship at work in such a way that it's inspired them to know that the God who made all of this fashioned me and holds me in the palm of his hand. God, may we be encouraged. May we be inspired in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen, amen. amen.